Amen. The Apostle Paul said, we proclaim Christ. We proclaim Christ in order to present everyone mature in Christ. And then Paul said, to this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. So Paul's energy is fueled by Christ. And it's my prayer this morning as we gather here and as we worship and we understand that our enthusiasm and our passion for the Lord is fueled by the Lord. His resurrecting power is resurrecting me. His resurrected life sustains us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Good morning, church family. It's good to be here in the house of the Lord today. And um, we just very quickly want you to feel at home in, uh, in this place, in this space. Um, I'm going to be in a space called the Fireside Room uh, through these glass doors and to the right. My name is Randy, by the way. I'm the lead minister of the church, and I would love to have a few moments of your time if, uh, uh, if you would like to just visit uh, or if you have encouragements or if you have prayer requests. Uh, I'll be there. Our uh, elders, our staff will be there. We want you to feel at home here at the church. Please let us know how we can support you in prayer. And there are some cards just in the chairs in front of you. Uh, there's a prayer card if you want to fill that out. Um, or if you want to let us know on your app, uh, the prayer request portion, we'd love to respond and we'd love to hold you up in our uh, staff meeting prayer, which is every Tuesday morning at 8.30, and then our twice a month elders meetings. And uh, if you're feeling new, uh, you're, this, you're, you're here for the first time, and you've got questions, or if you've got um, just how do I get involved in this church community? We, there's a card that we got a card for everybody here at this church. So first time here, here over 30 years, uh, we want to just want to try to stay in contact with you. One way that uh, it might help you get connected is through this little uh, document. It's a, it's a ministry catalog. And so it's a document with the, with the pink umbrella. If you go out and you'll see either on the desk or uh, or throughout uh, in the fireside room. There, it's called a, a ministry catalog, and we just have ways that we can uh, um, just connect with our church family, uh, and there's events for our students and children. There are adult discipleship classes, and we just want you to be informed, and so you please feel free to take this, take this home with you, and uh, we'd, we'd, we'd appreciate that. Each Sunday, we spend time in our worship service doing uh, really what you might call a, just a large group Bible study. Um, it's our preaching and teaching portion of our worship service. And we have been going through the New Testament book of Hebrews, and we're just in an, in an expedition through this uh, first century letter in the New Testament. And today, I would ask you to turn uh, to the New Testament book of Hebrews, New Testament book of Hebrews, and uh, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 39. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 39. And so um, we have church Bibles uh, that you're more than welcome to uh, receive, and we'd be happy if you had one. You'll find that on page 1007, 1007. Uh, or if you want to just use your phone, that's fine too. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 39. I want to put a tag on this message. Here it is. You have need of endurance. Say that with me. 
You have need of endurance. One more time. You have need of endurance. So we're going to be talking about endurance this morning, and you'll see that theme emerge as I read these verses in Hebrews 10, verses 26 to 39. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You have need of endurance. You have need of endurance. Anybody need endurance today? Amen. The university student who just received her syllabus for the semester, they call it syllabus shock. The first-year medical student whose nose is barely above the academic waters. The emergency room physician during COVID. The doctoral student whose dissertation needs revision. The patient whose rehab is going to take a minimum of seven months. The employee grinding it out in a hostile work culture. The spouse in an exhausting marriage. The wife who just buried her husband. 
the father and mother of three children, all under the age of five, the adult child caring for his parent who has Alzheimer's, the Christian suffering a crisis of doubt in a relativistic world, the faithful Christian who loves God, loves people, is walking in the Spirit and wants to keep doing so. I think I covered everybody. I mean, I can't think of anyone who doesn't need endurance. You have need of endurance. Endurance through hardship or endurance sustaining, doing the will of God. You have need of, en of endurance. Th these are the words from this preacher to the Hebrew congregation. And these verses are for us, too. These verses are for the person who came here today thinking that this is their last Sunday. Preacher, you better have something good because I'm about out of here. I'm about ready to quit my faith. You have need of endurance. This text encourages us to endure. You have need of endurance. And so, and so if God says, I need endurance, then the question is, how do I get it? What fuels it? What resources sustain endurance in Christ? That's, that's, that's what these verses talk of. Uh, the, God says, I need it, but he doesn't say, now I need endurance, now go out and get it. No, no, these verses tell us that we need it and, and how to get it because of who has it. That's where we're going today. Hebrews 10, 26 to 39. How we find endurance. Who fuels endurance. Now, now the outline of our text today uh, in verses 26 to 39, uh, the outline is basically this. The outline is not this, but this. That's where we're going. So in verses 26 to 31, it's not this. Let's talk about what, how endurance does not happen. That's verses 26 to 21. What does not fuel endurance. Don't do this. Verses 30, 26 to 31. 32 to 39 is the opposite. Do this, but this, you see. This is what will fuel endurance. You have need of endurance, and you won't get it if you do this, but you will get it if you do this. And so, so and, and I'll just tell you, the outline comes from verse 39. Verse 39 is how we've structured our message today. It's because this is how this paragraph is structured. Uh, but we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, not this, but we are those who have faith and preserve their souls. So, so you have not come to the shrinking back Christian church. Okay? Instead, you have come to the forward in faith Christian church. Okay? So let me tell you about what church not to go to first, the shrinking back Christian church. You have need of endurance, and you will never endure if you shrink back. You cannot endure in Christ if you quit Christ. You can't endure Christ if you quit Christ. And that's the issue in verses 26 through 31. Now, now, let me just identify the elephant in the room here. When I read these verses a moment ago, uh, some of you, some of you may be here for the first time, and when you heard these verses, it's possible that you may have just stopped listening. And you may have thought, you may have thought, okay, okay, so, okay, this is why I stopped going to church. 
all right? Another cranky pastor is going to go off on an angry rant, and he's going to guilt trip me and threaten me and bludgeon me with his Bible. And so, all right, all right, all right, all right. I can, I'll sit politely. Uh, I, can, I can take this for an hour because I'm going to be eating lunch somewhere. And, uh, but this is why I stopped going to church. And, and, and you may be a member here at Windsor Road who's sitting next to that first-time person, and you may be cringing just a little bit and say, really, Randy? Really? I mean, why couldn't you preach on Psalm 23? Why couldn't you preach on the parable of the Good Samaritan? Why do you got to, I mean, really? I mean, this is not exactly a text that a preacher would choose for friend day at church, you know. So, uh, and, and, and you know what? I, I get it. I want you to know that. I get it. And if I, if I had read these verses for the first time cold, and out of context, I would come to the exact same conclusion. I would, I really would. So, so let me try to put these verses in a context, in a historical context, because this is a historical document. The letter to the Hebrews is actually a sermon manuscript. It's a first century sermon manuscript that was originally presented to an actual congregation, a house church. Uh, it's possible that that house church uh, was in the capital city of Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. And um, this is probably around the year, somewhere between A.D. 64 to A.D. 68. And uh, so there's been persecution going on. And this church has been suffering. And this church is hurting. And they're tempted to quit. It's getting hard. And they're tempted to bail. And these verses, if you just stop there and look at these verses as a whole, you can see something and learn something about suffering. And here's the truth about suffering. Suffering never has a neutral effect on your life. Never. Be why? Because, well, be there's, there's two possibilities that could turn out here. And, and so suffering can draw you near to God. Suffering can draw you near to God's people. Suffering can draw you near to God's word. Suffering can identify your idols. Suffering can show whether or not we are relying on the sustainable or the unsustainable. Suffering can open us to truths that maybe we didn't know about ourselves before. See? And if we let it, suffering can drive us to Jesus in day-to-day -day dependence. So, so suffering is never neutral. It can make us shrink back or move forward in faith. And, and suffering can make you better because Jesus is better. And that's been the entire thrust of this sermon to the Hebrews. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than that mysterious priest, Melchizedek, from the book of Genesis. He's better than the tabernacle uh, scheme in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And he's a better way of life. Jesus is better. He's better. And so what the preacher does throughout this sermon is that he, he mingles 
with his, he woos the people to Jesus, but then he also, he warns them. There's wooing and then there's warning. And specifically, there are five warnings in the Sermon to the Hebrews. And we've called them rumble strips. Rumble strips. They, they, they cause us a little bit of annoyance to help avoid a major catastrophic annoyance, you see. That's the purpose of a rumble strip. They keep us from drifting into danger. And as these rumble strips reappear in the sermon to the Hebrews, we see that uh, you know, the warning kind of intensifies because the, the, the preacher wants the congregation to take what's being said seriously. And this preacher must have known something about the congregation to warrant such a warning. Because by the time we get to chapter 10, it's not just the danger is not just drifting, the danger is defecting. Defection. And the, the word is apostasy. Apostasy. It, it means defection. Defection. And so at issue here is not unintentional sin, but rather brazen sin. It, we're not even talking about sin that comes from a relapse due to weakness or fatigue. Uh, in verse 26, in the English, the first word is for, right? For if we go on sinning deliberately. Now, Hebrews originally comes to us by way of the Greek language, and the very first Greek word in verse 6 is the word deliberately. So the sig there's a signal there. We're not talking about something unintentional. We're talking about something that's deliberate, deliberate. So the defection stem stems from premeditated, brazen sin. So, so someone in the church is about to serve Jesus divorce papers. And this person had once openly professed faith in Christ, but it wasn't genuine because if it was genuine, they wouldn't have defected. They, they would have endured. Instead, this person openly disavows Christ. So, so the, 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 this, this person was treading water in the ocean of lostness. Miles and miles and miles from the shore, Christ appears, throws the, throws the life preserver and says, trust me, trust me. And this person says, nah, I'll just swim. I can handle it myself. See, Verse 29 describes this defector or the apostate. These are strong words, but let's, let's, let's hear them. Verse 29 says that the defector has trampled underfoot the Son of God. So there, there's been a sneering rejection of Jesus, who is the Father's final word, the heir of all things, the creator of the world, the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact imprint of the Father, the sustainer of all that is, and the purifier of sin. That's what we learned in Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, right? Well, well, this person is trampling underfoot the Son of God. Also, look, this person has profaned the blood of the covenant there in verse 29. So week after week, this, this defector appears in worship and receives communion, professing Christ for the forgiveness of sin, but, but the faith isn't genuine. And his desertion from the church proves that far from gratitude to Christ for forgiveness, he's profaned it, literally counted it as common. So, so Christ's death on the cross admits us into God's holy space, yet this apostate treats it as an unholy thing. And then verse 29, 
He has outraged the spirit of grace. Outraged. Some of your translations say insulted. And, and that word for insult is the word we get hubris. Hubris. So, so arrogantly spurned or arrogantly insulted the spirit of grace. So when Jesus did miracles and supernatural signs, his religious enemies attributed his powers not to the Holy Spirit, but to an evil spirit. And that's blasphemy. And in the same way, this traitor condemns the gracious influence of the Holy Spirit. He, he, he deliberately rejects grace and light for unbelief and darkness. And, and, and it's not out of ignorance because he knows the truth. The knowledge of the truth, verse 26. And yet still commits mutiny against the captain of salvation. Man. I mean, these are strong words. Yeah. Now, thankfully, I don't know anyone in our congregation that matches the description of verse 29. Okay? I mean, I just don't. All right? I really don't. Um, I do know that in our culture, there is a version of this happening today, and I want to talk about that for just a minute. Um, I'll use the phrase faith deconstruction. Faith deconstruction. It's, it's the process of methodically dismembering and discarding core beliefs of Orthodox Christianity, biblical Christianity. Some take this route all the way to atheism. Others supplement or adapt or dilute Orthodox Christianity in, in such a way that it bears little resemblance to the original. Now and then, social media announces celebrities, including celebrity pastors, who publicly declare their independence from Christ. They, they sever themselves from God's people, from God's word, from the benefits of the Holy Spirit. And they, they may still claim to be religious. They may still speak the language of spirituality, but they claim a faith deconstruction. And what follows are book sales and podcasts and guest appearances on talk shows. And it brings the question, why, why, why do people do this? Why, why do some people deconstruct their faith? And um, this week in my research, I was helped by a book that you may find beneficial. It's called Before You Lose Your Faith, Before You Lose Your Faith, uh, Deconstructing Doubt in the Church. Before you lose your faith, deconstructing doubt in the church. Before you lose your faith, deconstructing doubt in the church. And the authors um, give several reasons for deconstruction. And here are three for your consideration. Some people deconstruct out of church hurt. Out of church hurt. That is, unhealthy church environments toxic church members or, or toxic pastors, abusive pastors. They've betrayed your trust and, and their treachery can leave you feeling like Christianity as a whole is a fake. And, and what the authors in this particular chapter of the book state is that, is that the Bible actually acknowledges church hurt 
but deconstruction is a false cure. It's a false cure. Other people deconstruct not out of church hurt, but they, they deconstruct due, they due to poor preaching and teaching. Okay? So in other words, some of what we've learned needs to be deconstructed. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. All right? So that's, that's kind of a deconstruction, reconstruction, isn't it? And yet, and yet, hear me now, Jesus is not deconstructing the scriptures. He's deconstructing poor teaching. Jesus loves the scriptures. He's not suspicious like Satan, whose very first recorded words in the Bible were, did God really say? Rather, Jesus says, it is written, have you not read... Or I have come not to abolish the scriptures, but to fulfill them. So, so the problem with deconstruction is that it lets bad teaching have the last word. And, and deconstruction settles for a diluted version of the original. It administers a remedy that kills the very patient it's trying to cure. And, and here's why. Friends, you can never improve on grace. Not the grace Jesus describes and defines. You can't improve on that. No, no, no. So, so yeah, some people deconstruct because of church hurt and others because of just, just flat, poor preaching. But the third reason is some people deconstruct due to a desire to sin. And that seems to be where the Hebrew preacher is going in these verses. Some, some people seek deconstruction in order to justify an affair, excuse an addictive habit, or defend a, a willful decision which scriptures explicitly prohibit or command. And one, one Bible teacher put it this way, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. So, so, so the, mi the mind doesn't direct the will, the mind is actually captive to what the will wants, and the will itself, in turn, is captive to what the heart wants. See? And the trouble with human nature is that we are born with a heart that loves self over God. And in short, we are born slaves to the lust for self-gratification. I mean, we just want what we want. And left alone, we're always going to love those things that make us feel good about ourselves, even as we depart more and more from God and His ways. And so God needs to intervene and emancipate us, bring us salvation. This book that I talked to you about, Before You Lose Your Faith, tells about a conversation the author of the particular chapter uh, in college as a Christian had a friend who was an atheist. And they would go to philosophy class together and unsurprisingly, they would debate the existence of God. And uh, there was just an openness to their friendship. But I mean, they talked about, they talked about spiritual matters. And one day, the Christian finally asked his atheist friend, he said, look, if, if I could come up with all of the answers to your objections, if I could come up with all the answers to all your objections, 
would you even want to believe? And the atheist friend stopped and paused and, and said, you know what, probably not. Because you see, deep down, I really don't like the idea of somebody telling me what to do. Here's the irony. We can never get away from the one true God. We, we, we can't. We, 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 can't es- we can never escape the one. And do you know why? Look at verse 31. Because he's the living God. That's why. You, you, you can't make God go away. Your atheism or your deconstruction can't make the genuine God go away. See, you can't. Against a lifeless, reconstructed idol is the inescapable living God. And if you leave the mercy of the one true God, the only thing that's left is judgment. The only, I mean, think about this for a minute, brothers and sisters. What if you extended hospitality to me, I came over to your place, and instead of welcoming your hospitality, I profaned your hospitality, spit in your face, and I spurned your goodness to me. What are you going to do? What do you think God's going to do? So listen, listen, God's heart is to rule in mercy. And And if he does not rule in mercy, he will rule in judgment. But either way, he's going to rule. And he's not going to bend his good, pleasing, and perfect will to accommodate my every whim and fancy. That's the rumble strip. And it's delivered from a pastor who loves his congregation there. And and this pastor doesn't want to leave this passage of Scripture without without saying something. Um, And and it's, it's this. If you are struggling with questions about Christianity... And those struggles come from anywhere, you name it, okay? Either a toxic person or a poor experience or, or just, or cancer, okay? If you're struggling with questions about Christianity, my heart's desire is for us to be the kind of church where skeptics are welcome. I truly, I truly want to say that. Where, where we can field difficult questions and have a polite, informed con- conversation. And, and please understand, these aren't five-minute conversations. Okay? And, and th- th- they're probably not even, you know, 50-minute conversations one time. It's, it's just going to be a series of walking together and following the truth wherever it leads so, so we want to be a space for that. And that's why we have a plurality of leaders here. Because you, you, may not, you, know, you may not connect with one particular leader, but you may connect with another leader, okay? And so we want to be a space for that. Because, because you see, rumble strips explain reality. And the reality is that God loves us. And the preacher is affirming to the congregation. The whole point of this section is that the preacher's saying, you're not this kind, you're this kind. You're not the one who shrinks back, you're the one who moves forward. So you, we're not the shrinking back Christian church. We're the forward in faith Christian church. So don't shrink back, keep moving forward. Keep moving forward. Now let's talk about that. Yes, let's talk about that. Let's talk about moving forward in faith. Now, how do we move forward in faith? 
verses 32 to 39 tell us how we move forward and endure in faith. We endure by looking back and seeing how far we've come. So you've got to look back to see how far you've come, and then you look ahead to see the glory of the prize, all right? Looking back, looking ahead. Look at verse 32, looking back. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened. So, so in other words, this is a snapshot of the church. This describes and summarizes in, in, just in, in shorthand how the church started, right? So, you know, I mean, no sooner than you stepped out of the baptistry, no sooner than when you accepted Christ, you were immersed in persecution, so you converted and then were persecuted. That was, the, that, was the, that was the protocol back then. That's what was going on in their lives. It wasn't easy to be a Christian, but they did. Some of them were publicly abused. Some faced imprisonment. And some, the scripture says, you read it, some were partners with those so treated. So that's how it started. Some suffered, others watched their brothers and sisters in Christ suffer, and now those who watched their brothers and sisters in Christ suffer, they had a decision to make. How are you going to respond to that? Well, look and see, look how they responded. For you had compassion on those so treated. You see that? You, that's how they responded. Well, what, what did that look like? Well, well, back then, if you wanted to survive prison, it was nothing like what we have prison uh, in our country, in our nation today. It was nothing like that today. Back then, if, if Rome arrested you, they put you in kind of a holding, holding cell, okay? And, and then one of two things happened, all right, after your trial. So you're in this holding cell, you're awaiting trial. If you're acquitted, you go free. If you're not acquitted, if you're guilty, then... One of two things happened, exile or execution. That's it. Those were the only choices, really. So, so, you, so while you're in this holding cell awaiting trial, Rome's not going to feed you. They're not going to clothe you. They're not going to provide. That costs money. What? So you better have a support team. You needed people bringing you food and provisions. That's why Paul in Acts 28, had a team to help give him provisions because Rome wasn't going to provide it. And that's what these Christians did. They provided for their brothers and sisters in Christ who were, who were incarcerated. But, you know, there's a risk, isn't there? You know, guilt by association. If you partner with or identify with someone in jail, then they may come for you. You see that? So now you have a choice, and their choice was you had compassion, and, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Did you see that? You see that there? So, so while they were supporting those who were imprisoned, those who gave the support, their property was plundered. See? Well, I went to jail to help you, to support you, and while I was gone, someone, someone, broke into my home but 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 their response to that look joy what yeah read it joy you joyfully accepted so so the preacher says you can endure hardship by looking back and seeing what god has done in your heart to help so we call it uh 
redemptive remembrance. So we talked about that last week, didn't we? Well, here's another dimension of redemptive remembrance. Redemptive recall preaches to us. You've come this far to quit. Look at what God's done in your life. Look at the compassion that God has put in your heart by his Holy Spirit. You didn't do that on your own. God did that. God will bring you through. God is faithful. He will not defraud you. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in Christ Jesus. He will. He will. And so here's what I want us to consider from these verses. How has the gospel changed your heart? In the past year, what kind of transformation has occurred in your life or the past five years or, the, or since you've become a Christian? What has God done in your heart to bring you where you are? And let's celebrate that. That needs to be celebrated. This is who I was. Amen. This is who God is and what he did. And this is who I am because of what he, of what he did. And, and if it weren't for God, you know. And, and, and we not only need to celebrate that, we need to encourage one another. We need to celebrate one another for that, you see. And that's my prayer. That's my prayer for us. Uh, so I read about a grueling training. Um, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, the, it, it's how to become a Navy SEAL. If, you're, if anybody's interested, let me tell you how to become a Navy SEAL. It's a punishing six months. And much of your six months, much of your six months, you're sopping wet with salt water, and you've got sand plastered all over you. That's pretty much it for six months, plus a whole bunch of push-ups and sit-ups. And uh, uh, Navy SEAL training, it's the most difficult military training on Earth. And, and um, 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 you know, some endure, most drop out, all right? If you, if you, if you want to quit, if you want to drop out, they have a bell that's in the center of camp. And anytime you want to quit, all you have to do is just stop what you're doing and go ring the bell. That's it. That's it. And, and, and you know, actually, the trainers are screaming at you. Go ahead, ring the bell. Ring the bell. Go ahead, ring the bell. Ring, ring the bell. Ring the bell. You can go home. It's all over. Ring the bell. You can go get a hot shower. You can get the sand out of your face. You can get the salt water off. Get, go, you, can get, you can have some chicken and noodles. You can have a cinnamon roll. All you got to do is just ring the bell. Ring the bell. Six months of that. It'll all be over. It'll all be over. That's, those are some voices that you're going to hear. All right? But then there's some other voices. And the other voices are your, your, your fellow recruits who yell back, don't do it. Don't do it. Look how far you've come. Look how far you, if you quit, it'll all be for nothing, okay? You're not a quitter. You're not one who shrinks back. You're not the shrinking back kind. You're the enduring kind. You're the compassionate kind. You're the kind of person who, when your property is plundered, you respond with joy. You respond, and, 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 and so, and why can we respond with joy? Look at the text. Look at the text. Because having looked behind you, you look ahead of you. You see that? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You knew. You knew. It wasn't a maybe. You knew. I've got a better possession. I've got an abiding possession. It's an eternal possession. And my identity is not anchored to the stuff 
of earth. My identity is anchored to Christ, the better possession, the abiding treasure, the quality and durability and sustainability of the treasure of Christ. That's what gives endurance. Listen to me, listen to me. If you want to endure, you've got to look outside yourself. The, 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 the endurance is out there. It's out there. Hebrews 12, we will learn, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Fix your eyes on him. Endurance comes from the fixed gaze upon Christ. So let's keep looking to Christ. He's our prize. He's loosing and looking. Loosing our self-confidence and looking intently to Christ. You won't find biblical endurance at the gym. You'll find it at the foot of the cross. And we endure by relying on the endurance of another. We endure because Jesus endured for us. We endure because Jesus bore the punishment and the wrath. And Jesus withstood the shame. And Jesus shouldered the weight of sin for us. Our faith is built on God's faithfulness to us. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord God Almighty. And because Jesus was strong for you, you can move forward in faith for him. I know what the big idea is here. Here it is, here it is, here it is. Christ's assurance fuels our endurance. There it is. That's it. That's, that's the sermon in a sentence. Christ's assurance fuels our endurance. Amen. We're called and made to endure by relinquishing our efforts and energies and letting Christ's endurance be our own. Yeah. So you keep trusting Christ one day at a time. And here's why. Look at verse 37. We're not yet done yet. Look, yet a little while, yet a little while, the coming one will come and will not delay. One of these days, we've, we've talked about this, one of these days, Jesus is going to get up from his chair and go turn off the TV. And the heavens and the earth will become the new heavens and the new earth. And he will appear and the dead in Christ will be raised, and the living in Christ will be transformed, changed, and the heavens and the earth will become the new heavens and the new earth. Amen? Do you believe that? I believe that. I believe that. So one day at a time, by the power of Christ, that I, my goal today is just to get you to endure today, okay? And then go to sleep tonight under God's sovereign care, and he's going to take care of us tomorrow, okay? But let's get through today. I, I, before I sit down, I want to tell you about a group of Christians who uh, got together and they, they, they had a thought experiment about the question. Here's the question. If you could go back in time 50 years, if you could go back 50 years to the year 1973, and if you had $10 billion and a passion for gospel ministry, where would you put that money? Okay, 50 years ago. 73, and you had 10 billion bucks in cash, and you had a passion for, for gospel ministry, where would you put it? And, and they began to talk about that question. And of course, you know, uh, there was a contrarian in the group who said, well, what makes us think that $10 billion would really help? Okay, that was their answer. One person who thought otherwise said, 
well, I'd invest in Apple stock, and I would use the residuals to fund ministries and missionaries and church planners for the next thousand years. That's what I would do. So there. The most interesting question came from a woman in the group who said that the real value would not be the money, even that much money, but it would be the knowledge. A time traveler from the future would have invaluable counsel as to what is around the corner in time, right? And what matters and what doesn't matter. And, and furthermore, the value is not just the knowledge, so it's not even the money and not even the knowledge, the value is in the, the presence of the time traveler. So, so after all, just an announcement from someone who says, who says, I'm from the future, the church is still here, and the gospel is still spreading. I mean, wouldn't that give you confidence and renewed commitment? Especially, remember, some of you don't remember 1973. I do. That was the era of Watergate. That was the era of, of Vietnam. That was, and then that was, you know, 9-11 is on the horizon, okay? And, 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 and all of those stresses and struggles, and then it dawned on the entire group. Then it dawned on the entire group. We actually do have a time traveler from the future who came. Jesus who is the Alpha and Omega, who stands in eternity outside of time and has in fact told us, I am making everything new. And that frees us from all of our anxieties about life in the future because if Jesus and his church are inseparable, then the question, will the church survive, is the same as, will the glorified and resurrected Jesus survive? And the answer is yes, because Jesus has not only seen the future, he's already there, and he's got a lot more than $10 billion with him. So don't shrink back. Move forward in faith. His assurance is our endurance, because he who promised is faithful. Amen. He will see you to the end. Amen?